settling down on the seat, relaxing before we go boom into the technique. Just, just take a moment, settle, relax, feel your body, feel your breath, feel your thoughts, feel your toes open out, feel the space in the room, temperature, sound, light. Space in front, space around, feel the space behind you, above you, and below. Straightening up, pushing upward from the base of the spine, standing upward, the back of the head towards the ceiling. Go as far as you can, real straight, and then relax a little bit. Find the breath. texture of the breath, the feeling of the breath in the body, going in and out. And extending or shifting the emphasis to the out breath, riding the breath, placing the mind on the breath and going out. And just opening the room, your posture, your body on the in breath without any fixed objects, and then the next out breath. out into the space around you with your body as the reference point.
Good evening. Welcome. Once again, begin with our chants as usual. Chant, chant, chant. Where's the chant, chant, chant? You folks can see that on screen. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues and the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. O Manjushri, please accomplish this. Good evening. So tonight, class five. The progression of shamatha practice. We'll see the Kongchul Rinpoche, Jomagun Kongchul the Great, presents the progression in terms of the object, settling the mind with different types of objects, and then settling the mind in the essential nature. And then experiences arising from that five stages of experience, sorry, the five faults, the eight antidotes to those faults, and then five temporary experiences in meditation called Nyam, nine mental abidings, six powers, the four types of mental engagements, and then there's the tradition of the oral instructions, the five experiences called the five Nyams. This shouldn't be here probably, I don't know how that got there. Investigate that, and then Rimshev's presentation. So uh, he, pre he, the uh, hypothesis is that he presents the progression of meditation really through um, the scheme of the traditional four foundations of mindfulness. So we'll see how that works, and we'll see how his unique presentation of the four foundations goes. And that will bring in some uh, interesting insight into uh, the issues of what is shamatha, what is vipassana, and how do those relate to mindfulness and awareness. So first we have uh, John McConchell's presentation from the Treasury of Knowledge. And this was included in last week's, but I uh, re-included it here because we didn't get to it. Settling the mind with a concrete object or concrete support, and this is the traditional scheme in the uh, Indian and Buddhist traditions of uh, the Mahayana, is to start with uh, focus on an impure and then a pure support. Impure support is any object, candle, piece of wood, pebble. And uh, pure support is uh, image of the Buddha or a seed syllable or the attributes of a deity. 
In other words, if you're doing deity visualization practice, that is setting the mind with a concrete support. Derek, you're humming uh, a bit. Uh, Thanks for reminding me. How's that? Thanks. Cool. Thank you very much for reminding me. Uh, Emily did, but it was in the chat, and of course, I immediately forgot. The uh, manner of concentrating should be similar to the way a Brahmin twines his core, neither too tight nor too loose. You probably all have seen many Brahmins spinning uh, yarn. And uh, it's a famous thing, the Brahmin's thread, it indicates the purity of their celibacy. So they wear this thread that goes from uh, their loincloth up to wraps around their head or something like that. I don't know. Anyway, it has to be made in a very special way. And then... uh, Yes, (laughs) ma'am. I already have a question. Um, Between pure and impure supports, are you, um, is the idea to uh, notice a difference or to feel it, feel differently towards those supports or not? In the tradition there is, in the tradition with a pure support, you experience faith, you experience devotion, you experience, uh, depending upon which object you experience, you understand the qualities of the object, such as the image of the Buddha, you understand that you recall the qualities of the Buddha as part of the meditation practice to create a support for experiencing the progression of shamatha. Um, is that more of a foundational view, or is that later? Well, none of these, none of these are done anymore. Nobody really does these anymore. The tradition mm-hmm. has progressed, as uh, I mentioned last week when we went through these four types of objects in the presentation by Tsongkhapa, that basically the tradition has simplified and unified itself to using the breath mm-hmm. and just settling upon the breath. But, but in doing that, the idea is that we have to understand that we, we use the breath in a similar way and the posture and thoughts in a similar way to the progression that's presented here in that we we go through initially a very sort of concretized version of the object, at least we think so, sort of very uh, concrete subject-object experience. And gradually the separation between meditator and object gets uh, nebulous and eventually dissolves. So instead of changing the actual support, uh, one, one naturally progresses through these stages. So that's the idea. And that's uh, not something that's explicitly described in the presentation of meditation, uh, usually, commonly, nor in uh, the tradition that Trump Rinpoche presented. He doesn't specifically describe this, but we'll see it happening somewhat clearly in his presentation of the four foundations of mindfulness. And um, uh, my assertion is that this is what's happening, is that we're going from uh, an an actual object, when we're looking at the breath as the object of shamatha, to eventually we're settling upon the, the setting the mind in the essential nature. And that happens in a natural way. Without concrete support uh, means 
on individual parts, on the complete form, outwardly, inwardly, on the body, and on that which depends on the body. So the way this is phrased is a little bit odd, but it, it's uh, not a matter of uh, great importance, the details of this. The more important thing is that it becomes something internal and not, um, not concrete, but more of a, a mental image. So we're using a mental image internally as is done a visualization practice. Geometers classified into observation directed outwards, attainment which is directed inwards, and so forth. This is a sort of obscure way of uh, presenting uh, visualization or creation stage practice in the Vajrayana tradition. Anyway, there are indeed many ways of enumerating objects of observation in various texts, and they're all, all included in these two categories of concrete and without concrete shoes. Setting the mind in the essential nature is striving to remain absorbed in the essential nature, waves of thought having dissolved into the ocean of the all basis. Anybody know what the Sanskrit term for the all basis might be? Alaya. Yes, thank you. It's actually pronounced Alia usually, but Alaya or Alia, same thing, no matter how you call it or pronounce it. And so uh, how does the Alia relate to the uh, eight levels of consciousness? It's number eight. Oh, the, the number eight is the Alia Vijnana. Is it so, seven? No, seven is the, the Klishta. It's behind yeah. or below the Alia Vijnana, if you want to look at Yeah, it's beyond. It's beyond the con the eight consciousnesses. Either, either what did you say? I said behind, behind beyond, or below. Yeah, beyond. Over. Behind, below, around, above, permeating beyond. <laughs> it's it's the larger container within which the eight consciousnesses arise in progression, to some extent. So uh, settling into the into the alia. Does does this re remind one of any uh, anything that you've heard before? Settling into the alia, ring any bells? Anyone? Mujang? There's a Lojong slogan. Number, How does that go? Uh, rest rest nature in the nature. The Alia, the basis, whatever it is. The essence. Rest in the essence, the Alia. Yeah. Cool. Here we have. Yes, ma'am. How does the Alia and the Dharmakaya move? Uh, sorry, Jill. How does the Alia and the what? Dharmakaya. Like the... Yeah, so the Alia. Um, when it's uh, sort of activated, when when uh, when the the belief in the self as being the eight, all eight consciousnesses is is broken through, then the alia becomes sort of actualized into the three kayas, the dharma kaya, and so forth. In other words, enlightenment occurs, and some some texts actually present the idea of alia jnana 
as a way of expressing the idea that the alia in some sense is completely neutral and it's the ground, the foundation of samsara and nirvana. And on one side you have samsara with the eight consciousnesses and on the other side you have the aliyashnana, the wisdom, primordial wisdom and the kayas and so forth. And uh, the, the, the scheme of meditation is basically to break through the eighth consciousness. The eighth, the eighth consciousness is very difficult to pierce. And so when we say to rest in the ocean of the all basis, it's basically uh, um, hypothetical. It's a hypothetical statement because you can't rest in the all basis unless you pierce through the all basis consciousness. So it's a metaphor, it's an indication. One settles into the state in which all notions of subject and object are completely pacified with no concept of a support. By this, the endless flow of thought waves is completely dissolved into the ocean of the all basis and one arrives at the state of absorption, the essential nature. And this is ultimate shramata. Therefore, strive for it. Arise! <laughs> Genius! Go! <laughs> So basically, you can't really achieve that unless you've joined it with Vipassana, which pierces through the myth of the ego. But does this, does this remind you of anything, this description of shamatha, of meditation? For me, it reminds me of the way the Trunk Rinpoche describes the, the, the ultimate meditation state of uh, sort of panoramic awareness. One is just relaxed into space spreads out and we merge mind and space but we'll see that later we'll come to that famous presentation so then we have various experiences that arise from meditation and there's two ways of identifying these one is the using like lists lots of lists for those of us that like lists and um and then there's the more uh, sort of um, figurative way of expressing the, the experiences that come out. So here in the tradition of the great treatises, we have eight antidotes and the five problems. So first you encounter problems and then you apply antidotes. According to this, there's five of these problems. There's three different types of laziness. You get a bonus on laziness, not only one type, but three types of laziness for the price of one. Forgetting, um, uh, forgetting, uh, forgetting what? The instructions, forgetting what you're freaking doing when you're meditating. Like, why am I here? Laxity and agitation is uh, one translation of the basic experience in meditation. Laxity is some sense of dullness, sinking, murkiness, and agitation is discursiveness. He says each of these have two aspects. Uh, the two aspects means there's two levels of these two sort of levels of intensity there, which are called coarse is the intense version of laxity and agitation. And then they're subtle. And uh, some other systems divide this into three parts. There's like subtle, medium and coarse. But anyway, uh, then there's non non-application, which is you, you're uh, you've, uh, you don't really have these other obstacles, but you're just not applying the technique. You're just sort of like experiencing a vacation, like the, the pleasant experience of spacing out without, um, with, without forgetting the instructions and without laxity and agitation. 
and then there's over applying the instructions trying too hard so this is the famous image of the the balance of not too tight not too loose which is like the brahman's thread the antidotes to these are aspiration or uh, um, dedicated interest exertion faith and suppleness which counteract the first obstacle um, laziness the three the uh, three types of laziness are overcome with these four antidotes so you you needs four antidotes to overcome laziness <laughs> aspiration wanting to achieve the practice if you don't actually want to experience meditation it's hard for it to happen and then trying if you don't try it's really hard for meditation to come about spontaneously faith is like having trust in the in the situation the technique the uh the, the your state of your mind you know having trust that your mind has the quality of uh wakefulness in it that you can actually find that in meditation and then suppleness is ply pliancy that there's a sense of not not being rigid with your mind not being stuck and that applies in sort of many ways it's sort of philosophically not stuck in believing one thing or another and then uh, sort of experientially having uh, the ability to to shift and react to different experiences that occur balance trunk brimbache translated this as synchronizing mind and body as suppleness being synchronized that our body is sitting on the cushion and our mind is in that body sitting on the cushion our mind is walking around making a cup or making a cup of tea and your body is making the cup of tea too so you don't like screw it up and drop the cup and so forth um and then the next antidote is not forgetting not forgetting to apply the instructions is the antidote to forgetting the instructions very complicated uh, and that has three particularities we'll come to and then there's examination which is this these translators um, way of translating uh, introspection <clears throat> this term that last week we discussed as being the, the second of the main qualities of shamatha the first being mindfulness which is usually the term for the this antidote mindfulness is usually the antidote to forgetting the instructions is applying mindfulness and then um, awareness or investigation or um, introspection is the antidote to laxity and agitation and then application applying the technique is the antidote to not applying the techniques and then equanimity not continuing to apply the antidote or the techniques when you don't need to over application being the, the problem there and this just sums that up abiding in that gives rise to workability and accomplishes all aims this comes about through relying on the eight antidotes of the five faults which are laziness forgetting the instructions lash the same list and uh not to forget the object 
or the basis abiding and not the cause and the effect. Those are obscure ways of referring to the four antidotes to laziness. Not to forget the object is being mindful. To examine the mind for laxity and agitation is introspection. Actual application of the, the technique, which removes them being the obstacles, and then resting naturally when calm. These are the eight antidotes. Abiding in that uh, here means abiding in joyous effort in order to dispel unfavorable conditions. From this, the samadhi workability, pliancy arises. So he's going through the, the sort of progression of the antidotes. How do they arise? Abiding in that. So it means experiencing joyous effort or applying joyous effort to your, in your practice dispels unfavorable conditions. And from that joyous effort, we experience workability as pliancy um, or suppleness arises having applied joyous effort and this samadhi achieves all aims since it's the foundation of miraculous powers and we'll talk a little bit about um, the, the uh, element of magic today and uh, this samadhi results from the elimination of the five faults by meaning of the eight antidotes um, here we have them in more detail Laziness prevents application. There's three types. Laziness of neutral activities, such as sleep, slothfulness, attachment to negative activities, such as watching lots of TV or something, or I don't know. And then, or um, uh, like busyness, like busyness, uh, making ourselves busy constantly with like endless, doing endless little things. And as we all know, there's really no end to what needs to be done in this world. So if you have a sense that you have to finish everything before you meditate, it's never gonna happen. And then there's the laziness of lacking self-confidence. That's an interesting type of laziness. Laziness of not understanding that you possess wakefulness. Forgetting the instructions when meditating, one forgets the object. When resting in equipose from mindfulness, from having applied mindfulness or applied the instructions, laxity and agitation are the two main hindrances since they make the mind unworkable. Each of them has two aspects, coarse and subtle. Coarse refers to obscurity of mind, heaviness, the object being unclear through loss of firmness in one's awareness of it, just freaking spacing out completely. Subtle laxity refers to weak apprehension of the object, even though its clarity is present. So you're sort of with the breath, but there's no clarity to it. There's no precision to it. Coarse agitation, on the other hand, cannot be suppressed even by remedy. So that's like the mind is running rampant, you know, like you just got a call that you won the lottery and you just can't stop thinking about how you're going to, what you're going to do with all those millions of dollars. That happens a lot, actually. And uh, due to very strong attachment to sense objects. And then subtle agitation is the slight movement of thought, the mind being unable to rest undisturbed. And uh, it's important to note that there's sort of levels of thought in our minds, layers of thought. There's the, the gross thoughts, which are here called coarse agitation you know, obvious, very concrete thoughts. But then underneath that is the subtle murmuring of thought that goes on all the time. 
And uh, if one is not diligent and very precise in your practice and of looking at your mind, examining your mind, you'll mistake that that experience of subtle murmuring of thought for stillness, and you'll be you'll be lost in uh, subtle lack, subtle agitation, and that can last a long time. That's one of the uh, sand traps, so to speak, in meditation practice. On application of remedies is when laxity and agitation have arisen and one is unable to pacify them. One doesn't apply the antidotes to the different types of laxity and agitation. And application of remedies when one is free of them is a fall because then it, 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 one is unable to rest in equanimity. You're like pushing too much. And here he says if laxity and agitation are counted as one... Uh, obstacle, obstacles and antidotes. There's five obstacles. If they're counted separately, there's six. So some, he's just mentioning in, in different texts, you see different versions. Sometimes there's five obstacles. Sometimes there's six, depending on how laxity and agitation are considered to be either one or many. The remedy is the first four. Um, remove the first fall. We went through this just helpful to you know really understand these because this is these the important thing is to understand that these are not simultaneous experiences it's not like these happen all at the same time they're a progression first one overcomes laziness like laziness is sitting down to meditate and not actually meditating you know i think we've all experienced that where you just sit down and and you're just not into it. You're just not there. And then, okay, finally, you're like, come into the present, and you're going to really try to meditate. But you can't can't remember the instructions. The instructions haven't become familiar. Trungpa Rinpoche, I didn't include it because his presentation is is not that different, but his translation of some of the terms is interesting. Here he calls this familiarity. And he describes the process of, be of becoming adept at applying the instructions as a, a, a matter of developing familiarity with the instructions where they become natural, second nature to us, similar to riding a bicycle, where at first when you're riding a bicycle, it's very complicated. You have to like coordinate all these different things at the same time. And then um, at some point they click and you just naturally like know when to uh, correct your balance and, and how to deal with bumps and turns and so forth on a bicycle. Um, the remedy to forgetting the samadhi of not forgetting the instructions or mindfulness has three different uh, particularities. Strong clarity of mind. These are the three main qualities that we went through. Strong clarity of mind, non-discursiveness, i.e. resting one pointedly on the object, and a resulting experience of bliss, which is accompanied by a sensation of well-being. And so we'll see these come up shortly and as the temporary resulting experiences of meditation of clarity, non-thought and bliss and these are the results of strong mindfulness the sixth remedy is introspection which examines 
the mind to see whether there's laxity in agitation, whether it's arisen or not. If they have one, counteracts them, but in different ways. And he says visualizations, gazes, and physical activities. And he's referring to traditional ways to overcome things like uh, laxity is like uh, uh, refreshing your posture. Or if it's really bad, you get up and you put cold water on your face. Or you walk around a little bit, you get fresh air, you open a window. Um, if you're really agitated, you lower the gaze. You know, also the height of the gaze has is a little bit like a rudder and has an impact on uh, laxity and agitation. Uh, so those are the visualizations, gazes, and physical activity. The visualizations refers to in traditional uh, Vajrayana techniques are visualizing different uh, dots, colored dots in different places or syllables, which we don't really do. Non-application is to exert oneself in application and to train in, in equanimity. He says the nine mental abiding. So these are the nine stages of shamatha that one thereby progresses through when one uh, understands how to overcome the obstacles with the antidotes. And they arise through six powers. And the six powers are a way of simplifying the whole uh, thing between the five or six obstacles and the eight antidotes is saying that we begin with, that uh, we cultivate six qualities in meditation. And the key are the last four. First, we start with listening and reflecting. Listening and reflecting means we listen to the instructions. We listen to what is the idea with meditation? What are we trying to do in meditation? How does meditation work? And then we reflect on those instructions. We see how, what, how do they apply into our mind stream? How do, how do they apply to our life? How do they apply to us? So we contemplate. These are the first two stages of, of prajna, hearing and contemplating. And then we cultivate mindfulness, focused, precise attention on an object, and then introspection. So these first two bring us to uh, overcome laziness. The first two basically cultivate the four antidotes to the first obstacle. Mindfulness is the key to um, not forgetting the instructions. Introspection is the key to overcoming laxity and agitation. Joyous effort is the key to overcoming not applying the technique. And then familiarity is the key to ec developing equanimity, balancing between applying and not applying. And then there's this other uh, sort of obscure system of four stages of engagement, which I won't go into. Here's the six powers. Through relying on the, yes, ma'am. Are these different powers than the ones we ran across when we were discussing are. the 37 dharmas? That's not part of the same scheme. That's correct. In the, in the stage, in the, um, the second path of the five paths called the path of either application or joining or preparation. Mm. There's a thing called the five strengths, which then turn into the five powers. And those are different than these six powers. Okay. So these are the six powers of shamatha. He sort of sums it up in the way that I just did, which powers result in which stages 
and uh, then he describes how the four mental engagements relate to the nine mental abidings and then these result in the mind engaging in samadhi and he describes the nine stages in uh, a little bit of detail giving an explanation of them and uh, then we reach perfection so just briefly to scoot ahead and look at uh, there's this cool little chart for those of us that like charts so we got the obstacles here Let's see if we can make this a little bit bigger Got the obstacles down here, laziness overcome by these four antidotes, the powers of learning and contemplation, or reflecting, we were was the term earlier, and it achieves the first two stages of shamatha. And then it is these parts we haven't really come to, but I'll, I'll come back to these five experiences. And then we have forgetting the instructions. The antidote is mindfulness, remembering to apply them. It's the power of mindfulness and results in these two stages. And then we have elation or agitation and laxity. The antidote is awareness or introspection and results in these stages of the nine and not applying and so forth. So you have a little chart that helps sort of map these things out with the key part being these six powers, I think. Okay. Then we have the traditional of the oral instruction, which is um, the experiences accompanying the development of shamatha summarized into these five. And this is common scheme, probably we've all heard this. The, the idea of like at first meditation is like a waterfall. And the waterfall doesn't really start until you really begin to apply the technique. There, there's sort of a, like, generally, there's like a little bit of a honeymoon phase where people come and they learn meditation the first time. It's like really cool and and they are, you know, very peaceful. And then they go home and you call them up, you know, a week later, hey, how's it going? They're like, oh, Tara, I couldn't do that. It's just my mind went wild and I, I just can't meditate. I have too many thoughts. And that's a good sign. Not that they stop meditating, but the good sign is that they were actually applying the technique and as a result, the mind sort of fights back. It says, you know, if you think you're going to experience a calm mind, well, you should think again. Sort of. And uh, so that's the waterfall phase. And then you know, river flowing through a gorge very quickly uh, with a lot of turbulence and then a large river flowing leisurely and ocean free from waves. And then here we have an oil lamp not blown by the wind and in the chart I changed it to a mountain because Brock the rock really liked the mountain image so then we have the root source that uh, Kongchul had referenced this text Middle Beyond Extremes uh, has the sort of root presentation of this scheme of the of, uh, how shamatha is done and we don't really need to go through it too many times over and over again but more importantly this excerpt 
I saw was like um, a great revelation for me when I read it. So I share it with you in the hope that at least maybe you crack a smile or something. So this comes from a, a book on uh, Mahamudra, whatever that is called, The Royal Seal of Mahamudra. And uh, it's a section called Preventing the Strains of Blank Shamatha. And the uh, proposition is that certain people, or most people, or maybe everybody, experiences problems with shamatha where we just sort of think that we're doing correct practice, but actually we're slipping into uh, bad habits. So in this connection, you know, and these, I pulled this out of a section on the sort of uh, problems in shamatha. He says, in this connection, he's just gone through a section where he's describing the importance of mindfulness and awareness. This translator uh, translates introspection or awareness as knowing. So we have these two terms, mindful or mindfulness and knowing two main aspects of shamatha practice. He says, regarding mindful knowing, he's put them together. Mindfulness prevents the mind from wandering from the object, focused attention, and knowing makes it recognize agitation or dullness. So knowing is that open monitoring of what's going on and whether it has wandered or not. In other words, after strongly arousing the determination that says or decides I shall not wander from the object even for an instant, which I know that all of us give rise to when we start practicing that strong determination. Um, in other words, after strongly arousing that determination, extend the continuity of mindfulness on the object and constantly keep this concern in your mind by dint of the mindfulness that prevents the object from being forgotten overcoming the obstacle of forgetting the instruction. In this state, knowing, awareness, introspection, recognizes if there's distraction or not, if there are faults of dullness and agitation. Apart from this, don't analyze too much, just be vigilant, watching closely, watching closely. In the sutra section, in the sutra section, meaning in, in the way that meditation is presented in the sutras, Mindfulness and knowing are separated, and there are many explanations in this regard of these two factors. However, many of the pith instructions of the practice lineage. Do you know anyone who is, like, presents the practice lineage instructions? Trump or uh, Many of the pith instructions condense them into mindful presence or simply mindfulness. So these terms are conflated together and or just replaced by simply mindfulness and it's understood that it includes both factors and he says if you wonder how this could come about or if this is a mistake uh it, it comes from the way the bodhisattva by shantideva when there's mindfulness there's awareness or knowing mindfulness and knowing in this equation or quotation rather are distinguished from each other terms of subtle and gross or fine and coarse because within a mindfulness strong and clarity knowing is included so if you have a true mindfulness that's strong subtle it includes knowing 
Now, at this point, it may happen that certain scholars may think, when the mind is held one-pointedly on the object through mindful knowing, if a subtle thought were produced discerning whether it's on the object or not, or whether there's dullness or not, or agitation, then there, we wouldn't be in non-thought. We couldn't call it shamatha. So there's some, some of us think that in shamatha there should be complete non-thought. That there should not be any sort of internal notation or commenting going on. He's going to say that that's not true. On the other hand, if it were not produced, the knowing that notices dullness and agitation would not occur. So what should we do if we're in that bind? Unskillful people regarding a sub subtle thought such as this is a fault. The absence of the sharp brightness of knowing because they haven't realized that the sharp brightness of knowing isn't disturbed by subtle thought. They sustain a lucidity of mind consisting of whatever sense of clarity there may have been before. This is a pejorative. They have a, a, a not strong experience of lucidity and clarity. However, this kind of subtle thought, it's not a thought as such. So the subtle thought of noticing whether the mind is on the object or not, whether we're being present or not, that subtle thought of noticing it is not really a thought as such. It's a knowing or cognizance that's similar to a Vipassana. That's the key part of this. It's a knowing or a cognizance that's similar to Vipassana. And we'll see when Trungpa Rinpoche presents Vipassana, he, he brings these, these two together, basically. He presents the knowing of Shamatha and the, the uh, cognizance of, of Vipassana as basically one and the same. Yeah. Or as a progression, yes, ma'am. Is that what he's referring to? To Trump was referring to when he talks about mindfulness of effort. Uh, uh, Trump Rinpoche refers to it as mindfulness and awareness. The effort is the supporting uh, is the third factor. Well, okay. last week we looked at three factors of shamatha, and the effort is a separate factor. It's it's the uh, fifth power of the six powers. Three and four are mindfulness and knowing, and then effort is separate. But Trungpa calls, in some places, he, he's, he calls shamatha mindfulness and then vipassana awareness. And we'll also see that he's very vague in applying this terminology. And he applies mindfulness and awareness basically indistinguishably, interchangeably, which is very much what this gentleman just said here about the Pith instructions is that Trump Rinpoche is that they, they are used basically in this, in, uh, interchangeably. Derek? Yes. Could, could we also say that this is a mind that is self-aware? Self-awareness? Or is that uh, the, is that the yeah. The cognizance, the knowing, um, go, is what goes, uh, well, actually, the two of them progress through knowing an object, a concrete object, like the, the body posture, mm -hmm. and then knowing a non-concrete object, like the 
breath and then eventually knowing, being mindful and knowing of the mind, self-aware. And we'll see that progression presented in the four foundations of mindfulness. But they both apply to uh, any any object and the, the progression is like that where we go from thinking from from meditating on an object as if it's separate from our mind to eventually realizing that we're meditating on our mind. Okay. He quotes uh, the stages of meditation by uh, Kamala Sheila, the Bhavana Krama, after placing the mind on the object, place it there again all the time. Once it settles, cultivate the following questions by examining and thinking thinking is the mind fixed on the object properly is there dullness or is it or agitation towards outer objects the way to produce this type of thought is not by first abandoning the stream of undistracted mindfulness and giving rise to a thought see some people think oh if i have that level of inquiry into the into my state of mind and and do that in a way of giving rise to a thought, then I've abandoned my mindfulness. So he says, no, we don't first abandon the stream of mindfulness and give rise to that thought, but rather by simply being watchful while the continuity of samadhi is not thought, not lost, sorry. Further, if this thought is repeatedly aroused with too much strength, it will then lead to the fault of mindfulness slipping away. So there's a balance. Each instance simply watches over the next one. What a cool phrase. Well, the confidence of the preceding one is just strong enough not to disappear. To not disappear. In short, these ways of balancing tightness and looseness and sustaining the practice are excellent key points from among all the different ways of maintaining concentration. By sustaining in this way, the meaning of shamatha concurrent with vipassana will be unre- will unmistakably be realized because it's the knowing quality that leads to vipassana and when it's it's when that knowing is allowed to happen without it disturbing mindfulness then you have shamatha and vipassana together And here's the description of the, of the uh, blank shamatha. There's a danger of confusing dullness with shamatha. Many of us, I think probably all of us will experience or have experienced periods where we have uh, calmness in our meditation practice, but it, it doesn't have intensity to it. It doesn't have vividness or clarity to it. And that's what's called dullness. Shamatha or calm abiding is when the movement is when once the movement of subtle and coarse thoughts has grown calm and the mind abides in a continuity. So we're in a place where there's not a lot of thought happening, but there's not clarity. Dullness is failing to recognize. And being in a dark area with no idea what's happening, the nature of Vipassana insight is to nakedly see one's original face of emptiness. What is Vipassana? Vipassana is seeing emptiness, seeing the emptiness of one's original face of one's mind, the analytical cognizance, the knowing is such that based on verbal conventions, a mental image arises in the field of the conceptual mind. So that's a little hint on this whole thing of uh, 
mental images and so forth. I, I didn't understand that last sentence. Well, we'll, this is, we'll come back to this when we do the Vipassana. This will be a big topic, this whole mental image. Uh -huh. uh, that's in the Samadhi of Shamatha. There are two aspects. Stillness, the mind calmly rests in one pointedly without thoughts. And this is mindfulness and the undiminished, diminishing sharpness of mindfulness and knowing combined, including confidence. Confidence being that uh, energy exertion quality. Uh, let's see. Okay, so that's the traditional presentation. The oh, I I skipped something from John Cardwell. Hey, um, okay, good. I did not. Now we enter the world of uh, Trunk Rinpoche, the presentation of Trunk Rinpoche, which starts on, look at that, the pages are not numbered. Huh. Uh, in your packet, the pages are numbers. I sent this out twice and I seem to have printed the one without pages. Here, interesting, anyway. Hopefully you can find it, an element of magic. Um, it's like, why does Rinpoche talk about the, the idea of magic? It's to make, make practice not a mechanical experience. Entering, entering the idea that there's something non-conceptual happening in, in meditation from the very, very beginning and the very beginning also that it's not just uh, a machinery of applying mindfulness, being mindful, following the object, <clears throat> that the um, intention to be present is accessing the non-conceptual part of our being. And that's the magic he's talking about. Um, we're tuning ourselves into an entirely different way of thinking as opposed to our ordinary samsaric way of thinking. If we approach our meditation practice as just another samsaric thing to accomplish, it remains within the realm of samsara. Uh, so by tuning ourselves into the drama, committing ourselves into that stream or flow, we're automatically entering into a kind of spiritual power. It's not, you know, this big, extraordinary flashy thing, but there is this power and mystical energy that arises or is, or is the context for meditation practice. We're not talking about miracles and stuff. It's very important to know about this magical quality of meditation. While it's true that Buddhism is very scientific and so forth, it has this magical power which at this point may involve nothing more than employing a simple technique, but in doing so, something happens to you. It's quite different from just being a mere imitation. Not that you're converted to a true believer or you zap yourself or you convince yourself. It's that even the simplest teaching has a certain power to it. And this is the turning of the wheel of the Dharma. And so when we sit, even all the time, it's a special sacred act when we place ourselves in meditation on our seat with the intention of sitting. Even if you have impure thoughts, 
in the meditation hall. Probably none of you have had that yet happen. I did once have this, by the way, just for the record. They're still regarded as sacred thoughts. Even the most impure, crude, or confused thoughts are sacred. Discipline is important, of course. You may fall asleep, feel you've not meditated at all. You know, the gong rings, and oh my God, it's like you've been gone the whole time. You began to venture out all over the world. The only thing that reminded you you were meditating was that the gong rang. <laughs> and you were supposedly meditating, at least physically. But even such daydreams are important. It doesn't have to be solemn and rigid, but you should have the attitude that you're involved with a system and tradition that is valid and has its roots in solid thinking. Solid thinking. Meditation is an extremely valid thing to do. It's a promotion. Four foundations of mindfulness. So uh, we saw the traditional schemes of the progression of the practice through the three types of objects, concrete, not concrete, and the nature of mind and the different obstacles and antidotes and the waterfall and so forth. And here we have Rimshe presents the progression of the practice through using the scheme of the traditional four foundations of mindfulness, but in a very different way. So he says, in order to free ourselves from too much self-conscious involvement in the practice, these various things, a technique called the four foundations of mindfulness have been introduced and they talk, these traditional versions, they talk about, they're talking about the, how the functions of your mind, how your mind works and how it can be worked with is what he feels the four foundations are about. In some traditions, the four foundations are used to separate very precisely what you're experiencing in your practice. Teachers may use the four foundations uh, in that way, dividing up different categories of awareness and attention. But mindfulness doesn't need to be that scientific. So if you've ever studied the Four Foundations Sutra and the teachings on it, there's like a huge number of different things to meditate on, different things to be mindful of in different ways. It's very complicated, actually. But for Trump Rinpoche, says, these are not four different practices. And if you study them, Within each of the four, there's like numerous subcategories. Sorry, I just screwed up. Um, teachers may use the four foundations in that way, dividing up. Sorry. They're not four different practices, but four stages of shamatha practice. Although all four are considered to be shamatha, they could be considered to extend to vipassana. They sort of apply or lead into vipassana. The first is pure shamatha, however, because it involves only involves your own body and mind. You don't attempt to go beyond that. And then when he describes the first one, he brings up this interest, really unusual idea of there being a psychosomatic body. That the body that we think we experience is a figment of our imagination, basically. So first he says, referring to this mindfulness of body, we don't mean, we mean any form of bodiness, any form or bodiness. We mean all bodiness, all um, embodiedness, all form, all matter. And um, he says it means being aware of the totality, 
practice mindfulness, the totality of form. The whole approach is very simple. Just sit and meditate, relax with your breath. And, um, and there's no uh, difference in terms of beginners and advanced practitioners because I love this phrase, everybody, in terms of samsara, everybody's a professional. We're all professional samsara dwellers. Um, let's see. An ordinary person's experience of the body known as the psychosomatic body. I'm sorry, we should start here, really. We are uncertain as to whether it is an unconditional body or a body of conceptualization. An ordinary person's experience is known as the psychosomatic body. It's largely based on concepts of our body. Whereas an enlightened person's attitude towards the body, body-body, is simple, direct, straightforward relationship with the earth, i.e. actual body. In our case, we don't have much of a relationship with earth. We have some relationship with our body, but are uncertain, and we flicker back and forth. It says, even if you feel your body sitting on the ground and relaxed, it's not actually the body per se sitting on the ground, but it's your psychosomatic body. So we, we inhabit this mental projection of our body. It's your psychosomatic body sitting on the ground. Because somehow sitting on the ground gives you ideas. You're doing the sitting down, but at the same time, you're not doing it. Your mind is shaping itself in accordance with your body. So your mind is sitting on the ground and it's when your mind is wearing glasses and so forth. From that point of view, everybody is a self-portrait. This is what's known as psychosomatic body. So immediately introduces this notion of, of uh, sort of dissolving the idea of an external object into an, a mental image, getting us to understand that uh, we basically live inside our minds and we experience our mind's representation of phenomena. And that's what we're meditating on. That means yeah. a, a, a level of disappointment, yes. I, I find it so interesting because it it's... Um... <laughs> It's an, it's such an interesting twist on, uh, so I think he's sort of asking us to really be physically present with our body on the one hand, and then realizing how we're not usually that physically present in our bodies. And yet the idea that all of this is illusory as well, it, it's, I don't know, it's just such a, <laughs> he's he's presenting it because that's the only place you can start. There's no way you can start yeah. with the actual body, and so yeah. he's he's starting pointing us to uh, whatever we think our body is, and you have to start working with that. And um, so, in meditation practice, we are trying to include the psycho psychosomatic mind imitating body. We're going along with that body like attitude and sitting practice has been suggested as the way to work with that. The basic technique is working with the breath. Your breath is your physical body from the point of view of mindfulness of body. Sensations of all kinds go along with the breath as well 
uh, pains and pleasure. And the breath is the leading point. The idea of mindfulness is simply being precise as to what you're experiencing. However, these are not regarded as your actual body's experience. At this point, you're in a position, no position to experience your body at all. It's impossible. Your bodily experiences are just thought. <laughs> we have a disembodied experience of our body. And that's what we're meditating on. That's where we're confronting. We're confronting the reality of our mental projection, starting with our mental projection of our body. And the second uh, foundation of mindfulness, as we progress in our practice on the psychosomatic body, we experience what he calls well-being. And the second mindfulness, which he calls initially when he teaches this in 1973 for the first time, at the sem first seminary, he calls it mindfulness of life. And it's that, it's that what goes on with your body and your state of consciousness is worthy of respect. There's a feeling of well-being that arises from it. It's sort of like respecting the, the subtlety of our being, appreciating the sort of uh, magical quality of our being you see further subtleties and sense perceptions are more appreciated so gradually our senses become clearer through meditating even though we're meditating on the psychosomatic version of this phenomenon they become clearer the the filter is starting to uh, become cleaner mindfulness of life is rediscovering the world you develop reverence and respect this is more than just an attitude. It's something you actually experience in relation to yourself in the world. You're able to experience the magic and beauty, beauty and well-being of meditation, but also ordinary, non-outside of meditation. And he talks about uh, trying to clarify what he's talking about as well-being. There's a lot of different ways of thinking about well-being he's talked about. And he says, in this case, well-being is at the end of this paragraph in terms of the meditative state is unlike any of those other types. In this case, it's based on appreciating your own existence rather than being conditioned by this or that. So it's unconditional well-being of the appreciation of the, the subtlety of our sense perceptions. And he gives these, this traditional analogy. Well-being of body is like a mountain with no mist and rain. Speech is like a string instrument disengaged from the strings. So it no longer has any desire to communicate. <laughs> In other words, you're not, there is not much speech going on. Well-being of mind is like a great lake with no ripples. So well-being is simple, majestic, and uninterrupted. So this, these images of, well, of the well-being of body, speech, and mind is being when fully settled in, in uh, accepting their psychosomaticness. It gives the traditional terms for it. Um, and this idea of, uh, of this well-being in Tibetan Chokshok is fundamental well-being rather than conditional. It's not based on comfort or entertainment or any conditions at all. It's egoless, free of dualistic notions. Nevertheless, there's a personal experience of immediateness. So he's describing the next phase of meditation, the progression of shamatha, what we experience 
as we go through our meditation practice and become yeah. more Derek, subtle and precise. Yes, sir. Is, is this related to pure perception? It's the beginning of pure perception. That's right. Yes. Where you're, you begin to see uh, what he calls in the Shambhala teachings, uh, sacred world. And um, where, where we begin to appreciate uh, the clarity and the luminosity of sense perceptions. So that 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 at pure perception, we're no longer psychosomatic. Uh, um, not not until you get to mindfulness of mind, or actually enlightenment. You know, he said in the last one. Um, you know, it's it's really not until we're enlightened have we pierced through the the filters. You know, so this is just the beginning of pure perception. And thank, really, thank pure, really pure, pure perception refers to his way of presenting um, a, a Vajrayana experience, which is a more advanced experience. Um, this well-being, this free ego and dualistic notions, yet a personal experience of immediateness. You're not concerned with security, but there's consciousness and body. This is an, a very interesting part. He says, although we talk about letting go or the death of ego, at the fil- that's at the philosophical level of greater vision. You know, so while we're, we're progressing in our meditation practice, we're also studying the Dharma, which talks endlessly about egolessness, because that is the essence of Dharma, is egolessness. And he says, uh, that's, you have to understand, that's the, the end result. That's, the, that's at the level of greater vision of us, which at this point is philosophical. And we have to accept the fact that in our, our, the reality of our experience is that there's a world and there's a me. And recognizing this does not mean that you're going against the Buddhist teachings of egolessness. This is, I, I think, is a really essential step in the uh, progression towards Vipassana practice, Vipassana being the, the uh, insight that sees egolessness, is first you have to see ego in order to see egolessness. So there's definitely something there, which is the working basis and the magic of the path. You can't negate the fact that you taste a good cup of coffee. Coffee, you can't say there's no coffee and there's no you. There are such things. You know, so the idea of mind of egolessness doesn't mean that there's nothing. It's not nihilistic. Isn't, it's isn't much this... greater than that. And, and you have to start with the experience of the sense of ego. Sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, above, he's, I found this phrase interesting because it sort of reminded me of the foundational teachings, the process of contact with the phenomenal world. Isn't that what we're sort of focusing on here? In the second foundation in his presentation, that's correct. And And that's the sort of link to the traditional presentation is the mindfulness of feelings. And that gives rise to the increased subtlety of perception. And he divides that into preparing, proceeding, and touching. Yeah, and he's referring to the sort of Abhidharma way of yeah. understanding the functioning of mind, uh-huh. of, how, uh, how, of how sense perception happens, contact, 
preparing, mm -hmm. perceiving, and touching the different mental factors involved in perception. Then we come to the third uh, mindfulness, which he calls uh, mindfulness of energy, uh, effort, sorry. And in this, he presents this thing called the abstract watcher. So he presents this idea of there being a watcher in, in the meditation practice. And that's that sense of the introspection that's, that's knowing whether we're on the object or not. And later on, actually, he, he actually, I should probably, it would be better to skip to that. Whereas uh, um, in this section, Transcendental Watcher, he says, um, there's an ordinary watcher. That's simply the state of consciousness that watch, watches what's happening within us, takes notes of it, evaluates it, tries to compare whether it's good or bad, and so forth. It has feelings of fear, aggression, and patience, all kinds of thing mix, things mixed up with, with its ordinary watching. So in contrast, he then introduces this transcendental watcher, which is simple self-consciousness, but that's the more advanced state. Between those... So it's like there's three level of watcher, levels of watcher. He presents this abstract watcher. It doesn't have an aim or a goal. It's just mind being aware of itself. In mindfulness of effort, a sudden flash, flash of the watchers being there. You don't think in terms of getting back to the breath or trying to get away from thoughts. You don't need to have a concrete logical mind that repeats to itself what you're doing in practice. Instead, there's a general sense of something that's happening you're suddenly brought back. Something is happening. The general sense of, oh, I'm lost, and then you're back. So in the third foundation of mindfulness, we, pro we progressed past the initial experience of uh, forgetting the instructions, drifting off, remembering the instructions, and then sort of reeling ourselves back onto the object and into the practice. And having initially, when we practice, having that sense of being drawn away by thoughts and then pulling ourselves back. And it has a sense of like actual uh, physical uh, movement, like getting pulled away and then pulling back to being here. And then at the, the third mindfulness stage, there's no like sense of having to pull back. It's just you're here. As soon as you realize you're, you've wandered, your back. That, that flash, that uh, sudden flash of aware, being aware of whatever's going on in your back. This can't be manufactured, that flash. It comes along when there's discipline, which sets the general pattern of the practice. Once you have the attitude or idea of discipline, then there's something that reminds you. So there's this general uh, alarm system that that goes off and says, oh, we're here meditating, and you're back. And it's this generalized awareness of that, what he calls that, that, that. That what? What is that? No longer applied, just that. Just like it. This, we're, we're entering a, an entirely new realm of thinking, a new state of consciousness that brings you back automatically to sitting brings you back to the mindfulness of breathing and the general awareness of well-being, the first two stages of the, of the practice as he presents it in the four foundations of mindfulness. This is instant effort. You might call it a leap or a jerk or a sudden reminder 
or you might call it amazement, or my favorite is sudden abrupt amazement, or panic, or panic without conditions. It's unconditioned panic because it comes to you and it changes your whole course. It's like you don't have control over it that comes to you. It's like this wind. The idea is not to try to maintain that stuff, instant of mindfulness or hold on to it, but just to get back to meditation. Rather than nursing the reminder or entertaining the messenger, you just relate to what the message is, what the messenger has to say. That sudden flash of mindful, of effort or instantaneous reminding trick is universal to all practices of meditation, from Hinayana to Tantra. Therefore, effort is the most important point in the practice of meditation. So effort, effort was the fifth power and was what overcomes the, the obstacle of not applying the technique, right? Mindfulness and introspection went before them. We have mindfulness related to foundation of body. We have introspection related to mindfulness of livelihood or life the second mindful foundation, and then we have effort, the third foundation. This applies at all times, not just during meditation and practice. And then he describes the progression of mindfulness. The body creates the general setting, bringing meditation into the geography of your life. Mindfulness of life is about making a personal relationship with the practice. Mindfulness of effort makes the mindfulness of body and the mindfulness of life more valid and workable. With mindfulness of effort, you're clearly on the path, which is like the wheel of a chariot. It connects the chariot and the road or an oar and a boat, connecting it to the water. Effort is the connection that makes things move forward and proceed. And that, so mindfulness of effort, the sudden reminder or jerk of mindfulness is extremely important for meditation practice. And you can't bring this about just by hoping a flash will come to you. You can't leave it up to that flash of effort just happening to you. You have to set up a general alarm system or the general atmosphere of effort. So uh, in order to do this, you have to give up something. You have to give up your attachment to being preoccupied, entertainment. Unless you give that up, it will be impossible to develop this instantaneous effort or have it dawn on you. So it's important to have respect and appreciation for the practice and what we're doing and the technique of not getting lost in, with entertainment constantly and the willingness to work hard to do that. Um, and then it goes through this analogy for describing this type of flash of awareness that happens. And he describes it as being similar to a lover, thinking about <clears throat> somebody being in love, thinking about their lover. It's just like this constant presence. When your mind is not occupied, the lover is there. And then it's like the hunter looking for the animal. And there's, before you've identified a particular animal that you're going to hunt, you're just looking for any animal. There's, there's animalness. It's just the sense of that. You have to be completely panoramically aware in order to identify your target. Panoramically aware. Um, so 
so that openness, which I just call panoramically aware. So you need to have that level, that kind of openness. Such openness brings about the flashes, magical sensation of that without concept or idea. So before you've identified the, the animal that you're hunting, without name, concept, or idea, but just a sensation of there's something out there that I'm looking for. And uh, that openness is the most important aspect of effort. Awareness happens afterwards. You have to have this open sense of open monitoring quality of mind where you're just generally aware of everything going on. And from that arises the instant flash of effort, concentrated effort, and awareness in a more precise sense happens, uh, follows after that. And you have to disown that experience. You can't hold on to it. You can't, like, try to possess it. So it says, uh, if you're able to relate with the sudden mindfulness of effort, then you have no problem as to where you're coming from. You came from somewhere. That's what I mean by disowning the experience. You do not entertain the messenger and find out where you came from. Instead, you could be like a snowflake released from the clouds just about to come down onto the ground. You have no choice. I think this is a typo and it should have been. Uh, then you have no problem as to where you're coming from. You came from nowhere. <laughs> I Anyway, then the next stage is the mindfulness of mind, which is uh, the transcendental watcher, a glorified. He uses this word transcendental. He uses it in the Paranitas as well. Um, let's see. What does he mean by transcendental? I talked about the ordinary watcher. And in contrast, where's the contrast? Here we go. In contrast, the transcendental watcher is simply self-consciousness. So this is what uh, Henrietta asked about before. So the fourth foundation of mindfulness is the sense of self-consciousness. Not clumsy, heavy-handed self-consciousness of meanness, uh, big-headedness, or like, you know, what, what do I look like? And embarrassment and that stuff. Just being aware and consciousness of what's happening completely and totally. So complete... So it expands into panoramic awareness. The superordinary watcher is able to see what's happening while the application of awareness of breathing is taking place. So once you have that complete openness, completely and totally open, aware, then within that, there's the mindfulness of, of breathing taking place. And there's also thoughts going on within that. And they don't disturb the sphere of open, completely open. Uh, panoramic awareness. Now notice that he uses the term here, awareness of breathing, where really it, he's trying to say mindfulness of breathing. So when he's saying breathing, that's the object, the precise object, and mindfulness is the precision. But just like in the Royal Seal of Mahamudra, he's mixing up these terms. So he's not that precise with his use of those terminologies. Knowing, knowing that that term, the tr way of uh, translating introspection, knowing intelligent what is happening. It's still not complete freedom from the point of view of Mahayana or Vajrayana, but nevertheless, it's the only way to develop the potential of Prajna, discriminating awareness of wisdom, i.e. Vipassana. That knowing intelligently what is happening is the only way to develop Prajna. Uh, sorry, Vipassana.
Um, so the best way to begin to practice this is to be aware of what you're doing. There's no other way, just to be aware. Begin to develop more space. Being aware of what you're doing does not have to become heavy-handed. You can just do it. So his whole uh, presentation of, of expanding into space is not a way of like losing track of everything and just dissolving and, and letting go, but it's a way of actually expanding our sense of being aware of what we're doing completely and totally open. Just be aware, be aware of what you're doing, sorry, and uh, just be there and then, and then disown, touch and go, so you don't hold on to it. You don't cling to it as some you know, special experience. You just disown it. Don't cling to it, just continue. And this relates again to the effort, the mindfulness before it comes in at the beginning and the end and during occasionally. And you don't have to strain or hang on to your effort and push yourself. Uh, but rather there's a, this sense of sort of constant effort being maintained. And in other places he distinguishes <clears throat> between two types of effort. There's there's sort of long-term effort where we have this, this uh, sort of general intention of, in this case, being present, being aware, versus sporadic, like little uh, spurts of effort to be aware in this case. Uh, so he's saying there's this, this overall sense of effort to be present. There's no experience, no meditation, just effort. You're just being effortful rather than actually meditating. So meditating something other than effort is happening, alternating. This is a little bit vague, but um, he's trying to present this idea that it doesn't have to be this heavy-handed thing. One doesn't have to be 100% effortful, and then you blow the whole thing. You're just a lump of tense muscle. So you have to make some compromise. So at the beginning, you push yourself to t into practice, which is a certain amount of effort. During the practice, you occasionally check that you're still keeping up with it. And then you try to make the effort. Uh, you may, If you try to make it effort continuous and solid, um, it, it doesn't work. In the end, uh, you have to let go of that particular project. And so in, in the end, the effort is based on trust and impermanence that uh, things are going to change. And if you focus too hard on trying to make things not change, it's not going to work. In other words, focus on being uh, really present, really focused in your meditation. It, moment by moment, it won't last. Um, this particular technique of Buddhist meditation allows a certain amount of subconscious gossip. It's not at the level of repeating or replaying events of the past or expectations. It's just simply taking note of what is happening at this very moment. The same way that it was described in the Royal Seal of Mahamudra. This idea of, of keeping track in a subtle way of what's going on in our mind is what is involved in this type of meditation practice of mindfulness awareness. Um, that much gossip seems to be necessary at this point. It's keeping track of now. Is, we can't expect complete perfection without any thought process or movement at all. 
if we do so, we're inviting real confusion, further confusion, and real gossip. We're having a fist fight with ourselves. In mindfulness of mind, mind is that which knows, which takes notes of what's happening while still being fully mindful and steady, ongoing and patient. It's keeping track of the practice of meditation and the techniques we've developed. He presents the five yams. He presents this progression uh, in a fairly similar way. And at the end, he says, um, no, let's, let's go on to the the temporary experiences, the three fundamental uh, So, so uh, John Mukancha referred to these at one point as being three qualities of the mindfulness of their being, clarity, non-thought, and bliss. And that's these three fundamental yams. And uh, these experiences are, are very important to know about and how to relate with them. They're not some sort of permanent experience of realization or attainment. They're temporary experiences still. Um, you can't hang on to them. And yet, he's, and yet he says, um, they denote progress you're making. So the first one, bliss or joy, and uh, you feel refreshed. So experiencing some sense of refreshment from the practice. Absolute well-being. He describes that a little bit further. And uh, he, he compares it to the second foundation of mindfulness where he described well-being and said, in that experience, the quality of well-being is not all that dramatic. It's just a sensation of being. And here you experience a much more solid sense of well-being and security based on the inspiration of the teachings, interestingly. Um, and here are, experience, are different varieties of it. Um, the experience of bliss, um, uh, radiating love and kindness, feeling extraordinarily rewarding to sit in practice. You feel worthy to be here. So it includes all these extraordinarily good and absolutely splendid feelings. However, these could be an obstacle if you regard them as permanent. Everything comes along very easily and smoothly, then there's room for effort. So therefore, you have to come back out of this experience of bliss into the fourth foundation of mindfulness and practice. And the word bliss is sort of a superlative, and uh, it has a range of just pleasant feeling extending beyond that. Luminosity, meaning clarity, doesn't mean seeing a brilliant light. It means you're able to work with a tremendous amount of energy. So there's a level of, of uh, exertion in your body, energy, energetic um, presence in the body. And then non-thought. This does not refer to a complete state of being without thoughts. Even though it's called non-thought. It's rather a quality of stillness. There's, there's this quality of stillness, solidity and stillness that does not want to move. And then any experience that occurs in your state of mind, such as thinking, is very still and solid. It's as if nothing happens. It could actually lead to a tremendous depression. You feel you're going nowhere backward, you're stuck. Everything's getting monotonous. 
you just want to stay in one spot, you feel drowsy and uh, faintly aggressive. Um, so you have to recognize these experiences and not cling to them and not get caught by them, but move on by coming back to mindfulness of mind, that quality of self-awareness of whatever's going on. Um, these They can be perceived as temporary by mindfulness of mind, that self-conscious awareness. The idea is not to dispel them or to cultivate them, but just acknowledge this is happening, this is happening. Lastly, we'll go through this quickly, but uh, in, um, in, a, in a, a subsequent presentation on the four foundations of mindfulness, he changes his terminology for the second foundation from livelihood or liveliness when he first taught it to life force. You don't often hear Trump Rimshe talking about life force, but he does. And this is in uh, Mindfulness in Action, a book that came out a few years ago only. <clears throat> and it's, but it's a similar description. Uh, checking in, you begin to hear sounds more clearly, you begin to see more clearly, and you begin to feel your body more distinctly. When you check in with this process, you realize there's a faint feeling of being uh, very alive in the midst of all this chaotic activity. A feeling of being so alive is connected with being sane, being fully there. You check in again and again, and slowly, slowly you connect with sanity, which in this case is being in contact with reality and its fullness as much as is possible. Being mind, fully mindful to begin with and beyond that, a greater experience and freedom. Feeling your life force is an experience of being. Feeling your life force, what does it mean to feel your life force? That source of energy within our bodies, that subtle movement of energy in the body, brings your mind into focus, into one-pointedness. You may wonder if it's really this simple. Or you may feel that you've learned a new trick. In fact, it's the first trick and the last trick at the same time, and it runs throughout the practice of meditation from top to bottom, beginning to end. The same thing about you're meditating even when you think you're not, and so forth. Uh, but very interesting to see that the second mindfulness is focused on experiencing the sense of, of liveliness in the body life force in the body. And that's what leads to the refinement of perception in the second foundation of mindfulness. Um, and then lastly, uh, in this presentation of Mindfulness of mind, touching the surface of mind. Another foundation of mindfulness practice is being mindful of the mind itself. Mind reflects our thoughts, feelings, sensations, and emotions. It's experiential, experiential or experience-based aspects. Gaps or glimpses of clarity without any particular content also appear in our minds. 
I refer to them as the intuitive aspect of the mind. These glimpses are just part of our basic makeup rather than being particularly insightful. He starts presenting this idea that gaps happen and they're not that big a deal. It's the gaps and the content of mind and the thoughts. We don't like become fixated on gaps and freaked out by having thoughts and emotions arising. We may wonder whether we should focus on the experiential or the intuitive aspects. Should we pay attention to the mental and emotional absurdity or to the momentary clarity without content, the gaps? This can be a quandary for us. In sitting practice, thoughts and emotions come in these, all these form, and the experiential aspect is provocative and entertaining. It's a great source of preoccupation. And the intuitive aspect, the clarity of the gaps is refreshing, provides relief from the torrent of thoughts and emotions. Um, should we pull back from the preoccupations and try to be a good boy or girl? And uh, let's see, he says that there are conflict between the emotional and mental contact versus the gaps. Which should we focus on? And then he gives us the answer. When you experience mental confusion and emotional cloudiness, you might hesitate to come back to the awareness of the breath. You might like to remain there exploring. Sorry, this is not yet the answer. Here's the answer. In fact, you can relate to both of the situations, empty clarity and the emotional mental content. Working with the mindfulness of mind, you don't need to choose one or the other. So here we've gone from the idea of concrete to non-concrete object to resting in the nature of mind, awareness of mind, mindfulness of mind. It's just uh, shifting our focus from the object to the self, to the awareness itself, and being self-aware of our minds. The technique of mindfulness of mind is just to be with whatever happens. Movement of breath, the body, the fickleness of thoughts. So mindfulness here is a larger notion of covering all of the other things that are going on in our experience. Consciousness usually implies a focus, but in this case, at the level of mindfulness of mind, our concentration overall awareness can develop a more panoramic quality. It's a beam of light that expands or widens when it's reflected off an object. Um, when our beam of light, our, with our beam of light of mindfulness, we touch the highlights of this and that, and they're both seen simultaneously by the mindfulness of mind. Thoughts, sounds, visions, all of these are connected by one binding factor, which is the mind. This is what we mean by mindfulness of mind. The cognitive mind is actually functioning in utter precision. And it goes on about this some more, uh, talking about the gap which is also included in our practice of awareness, our presence of awareness. The gap doesn't mean that we lose awareness. We have awareness of the gap. You don't make a big deal about them. It's just a change or a shift. So it's like this, the, this is the totality of mindfulness of mind. It gives this analogy of stroking a, the fur of an animal where you're moving, uh, you're uh, touching individual hairs, but you feel the, the, the totality of the hair.
So the sense of totality of experience where you're not caught by any one part of it. You're not caught by the content. You're not caught by the gaps. Sharpness, precision, and simultaneous awareness of all the different components. Same with the toothbrush. It's total awareness without being selective. This approach from one point of view is not all is not at all demanding. It's a light touch rather than hard work compared to that some traditions where they concentration on an object is very hard work. From another point of view, it's extremely demanding if you put all of your effort and energy into something that occupies your mind, which makes you feel better. However, if your mindfulness practice is touching and experiencing everything without being heavy-handed, you feel it's suspended in the middle of nowhere. It's almost easier to occupy your mind with something than to be aware of everything without it being an occupation. So you begin to have this sense that maybe there's, maybe I'm not doing this right. Maybe I'm doing it in a half-hearted way. But then you, you're just there, being aware of everything that's going on. <laughs> it's hard to explain this logically. The ups and downs we experience in themselves become the evenness or the equanimity of our experience that can be the experience or symbol of peace. You can glide through the different landscapes of mind without becoming distracted. So this is, you know, when we reach this phase of meditation practice where there's stuff going on in our mind, but it doesn't bother us. Our mindfulness and awareness have expanded into this panoramic, spacious experience that includes everything. And there's no being pulled away and no coming back at all, even in the sense of the jerk of effort that he described earlier. And due to this, things become workable, a sense of workability. You develop appreciation, experiencing each moment, every day. Life becomes humorous and workable. Sense experiences become more real. You enjoy looking at the same what a rock or whatever. <laughs> this light touch makes a big impression on your mind. Anyway, enough of that. What have you guys been thinking about? What's going on with you guys? I'm lost in this little Zoom screen, share screen world. What's going on with you guys? Say something, somebody. Here, can I ask a question? And I apologize if it's a uh, an obvious thing. Oh, no apologies. Never any mention of intention. And intention setting is something that came with instruction for me. So I wonder if that's outside of this process of Shamatha Vipassana. It's a before thing. Um, and it's it, part of the overall walking along the path rather than specific to meditation. Yeah, the intention is that first antidote among the four antidotes to laziness. There was aspiration, 
and that's another translation for intention. But in these in these readings, Rimshay doesn't focus on the intention. He does in some other places, but it's not a. Some traditions have like a, an elaborate, let's call it, intention, where you like set your intention for the day or for life or your practice. And you sort of talk to yourself and give yourself a little pep talk or something. He wasn't really that into that sort of thing. It was more like a, a, an overall sense of commitment and the, and the exertion and the discipline. That he, the way he was talking about that is the continuity of that intention. And he just didn't say the word intention, but it very much is having that long-term commitment. And uh, there, there, there are places where he talks about it more explicitly. In particular, uh, he uses the term commitment and um, that the, the importance of the commitment to being present and mindful as the essential key for that, ex- that ability to uh, uh, generate exertion and all of the other factors of the practice. So it's, it's essential. And there's different uh, traditions or different customs for how to develop intention. You know, as I said, a, a sort of elaborate versus very, very simple, just the intention to be present. Helpful. Thank Aware. you. Thanks for asking that. What else? Oh, uh, Cynthia. I noticed um, I, I, we, we, we skipped over the, or jumped over that last paragraph in, in, when he went through the five stages of the waterfall through, you know, calm and all that. I was very interested in the last paragraph after that, where he talked about the fact that he, as if there is no prog- sense of progression and that while most people think the, you know, that the last one or the fourth one is the best, but he would just completely through that you know, out the window. I was curious what your thoughts were about that because I think that's a very conventional sense. Yeah, I should have I should have noted that. Thank you for bringing it up. This is it. It seemed like he was constantly interested in not feeding our desire to experience better and better and greater and greater uh, results from our practice, and just. Just to present these, you know, what he calls these nyams, these temporary experiences, you know, just sort of things that'll happen and not a big deal. Don't become fixated on these. And, and basically, in other traditions, they, they, you know, it's very much a, a way of describing progress in the practice with the fifth stage, you know, being clearly better than the earlier stages. And also, the, what he calls the three fundamental nyams at the end there are the main experiences as on the sort of fruitional level of meditation practice that emerge. And he like presents them as such, you know, in, in such a sort of uh, downplayed way, you know, so he's constantly not trying to, to uh, create the uh, framework of like a carrot out in front of us of, you know, wh- what you can get and, and when and how and where and so forth. But uh, Jane, did you have some thought on that? I saw. No, I just am agreeing that it was all sort of throw away. Yes, yes. Uh, Let it all happen and be with it is kind of my takeaway, which was reassuring on the one hand. But I'm always wrestling with 
the dueling nature of being precise and being very basic and simple. It's uh, how can it be both? And yet, I guess it is. I think he was emphasizing by not by downplaying the the progression as being like a progression towards betterness. He doesn't want people to get this idea that less thoughts is better or less activity. Yeah, I mean, that was very, yeah, and that was what was more potent. I mean, the the, the dismissing the three nyams, that wasn't surprising because that's consistent with the tradition. You know, everybody teaches it that way as far as I know, that you don't want to make a big deal out of those. But that other one seemed to be definitely different than the traditional ways of presenting. So it was definitely bucking it in a really interesting way. Anyone else, anything? See that we're a little over time, but any other comments or suggestions? Very well, let us end. And uh, how's it going generally? Is the reading too little or too much or too big or too small or too many vowels and not enough consonants or? Just page numbers do help if you can do them. Page numbers definitely help. <laughs> Thank you for the reminder. Have a nice I week. Know you know. And uh, here's our something happened to our um, chance. I lost the chance. In case people don't know the uh, dedication. This merit may all obtain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death from the ocean of samsara. May I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the Grades. May the lotus garden and the region's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you. Thank you. See you soon. You. Have a nice week. Enjoy Bye, your snow. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thanks, Jerry.